You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. My name is Nicholas Rippold, and I'm your host. The starting point for this week's episode is a new series on the Criterion channel called Close to Home. It's all movies where the filmmakers drew inspiration from their own homes and everyday lives. Everyone from Martin Scorsese to Maya Deren to Blake Edwards and Chantal Ackerman. My guests are the co-programmers of the series. Nellie Killian, who's also a programmer at ScreenSlate, and Chris Wells, who works at Mubi in distribution. Nellie and Chris also discuss what's different about programming for streaming versus programming for theatrical, and they reflect upon the specific challenges and opportunities posed by the past year's upheaval and the reopening of movie theaters. Streaming is a subject that's often left weirdly opaque, but their insights on the industry are illuminating and informative. Both are also voracious movie watchers, so they also talk about their endless pursuit of titles on streaming and beyond. And I might have recognized myself in some of that. As you'll hear, more than once, I was quite happy to sit back, listen, and enjoy. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. Today, I'm very happy to have two guests who have an embarrassment of riches to talk about. Uh, I, th I think originally I was curious about the series that they had programmed together, which we'll probably start with on the Criterion channel. I'll just introduce them first. Uh, we'll start with alphabetically uh, with uh, Nellie Killian, a programmer. Welcome, Nellie. Good to be here. I guess it's been a while, a while. I don't know. It has. I was actually trying to remember what the last thing I saw was the last time I was on the last thing I saw. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't remember what it was. Yeah, like it must have been... Isn't that close to a year ago? Yeah, I think it was a year ago. I mean, generally, I've tried to banish the entire memory of the last year, so that's an obstacle <laughs> to. Uh, but I must have it written somewhere. Oh, and also they're recorded, and I post them, so I, I can look that. I can look that up there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's on the internet somewhere. <laughs> it's it's somewhere out there. Um, and then and then welcome Chris Chris Wells. Are you already started at Mubi, or is that? I am. I am started. I have uh, been at Mubi now for two months, so we can talk about that. We can talk about Criterion. We can talk about things that aren't on streaming, which would be great as well. So we can talk about a little bit of everything. It's nice to be yeah. here, Nick. I'm a. I'm a fan of the pod. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, have you both actually already seen this? I think this should be, probably become a standard question, at least for the next couple of weeks. Have you both already seen something in theaters, like in the past? month or so no i haven't I'm, I'm dying to i'm waiting until i guess that superficial two-week break after my second shot i'm getting my second shot this weekend and then i i guess i will wait but it's not it's been since march 11th of 2020 the last movie i saw in a theater which probably gave me covid was seeing epicentro a uh, a kino lorber release back when i was working for them at the Museum of the Moving Image, the opening night of that program. So Eric Hines, probably the one who gave me and many others COVID, as I, as I like to tell him. <laughs> well, that, that's just being a complete host, I think. You know, you just want to uh, give the full experience. Um, and, ne and Nelly, what about you? I haven't seen anything in theaters since over a year ago, too. But I did go to my first drive-in a little over a month ago. Wait, Ooh, what'd I, you see? I recently learned to drive, so it opened up that possibility. Um, and 
it was one of the ones that sort of popped up in a lot of places that, you know, it isn't normally a drive-in, but they've accommodated. Um, Fort Mason in San Francisco now shows mm. movies. They do stuff with the San Francisco Film Festival. And the program I saw was uh, Rick Prelinger's Lost Landscapes of San Francisco. Oh, wow. That's so cool. God. It was really cool. <laughs> it was Damn. great. I mean, um, I went with a couple friends and... Uh, like I said, I'd never been to a drive-in before, so that experience was interesting, even though this was definitely, I think, a lot sort of stricter, I guess, than uh, a drive-in would normally be. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it was like great to just be in this like kind of historic part of San Francisco and like watching this, um, these sort of, you know, phantom images of the city from, you know, various home movies and other sort of ephemera that uh, the Prelinger Archive has collected. Um, and he was coming over the radio waves instead of uh, doing the live lecture like he usually does when he does this type of program. Oh, wow. That's so cool, man. I I have gone to some drive-ins too, but in Pennsylvania, the, the Mahoning drive-in have been a few times mm. over the last year, which uh, for a while, I think was the closest geographic location to New York City where you could see a 35 millimeter print. So we were driving, you know, two and a half, three hours my lady friend and some friend of ours to uh, to go see, you know, Wes Craven's new nightmare <laughs> on 35 <laughs> because that's the, that's the, the, the best we could kind of do. Cause there wasn't any 35 projection here in the city with the drive-ins. So. Oh, um, that is something that I will try to stop. It's a text message. I was afraid it was like a smoke alarm or something. No, no. It does in a way have to do with like something watching quite a bit of which is um i i sort of reluctantly began watching gray's anatomy when it premiered in 2005 uh because i had some roommates who watched it and now 17 years later i still watch the show um (laughs) and it's you know a true soap opera and i i kind of love watching it and having now this really long relationship with this um program but one of my friends had a baby uh, about four or five months ago and decided she was going to watch all of Grey's Anatomy my friend Mel Ahern who's a film professor (laughs) at University of Washington and um, I dip in with her occasionally but the reason I had to turn off that dinging is because she's she's on some Grey's right now and is going to be texting me all of her observations (laughs) about uh, (laughs) you know the roller coaster that is um Ray Sloan Memorial Hospital in Seattle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's almost like an EKG actually com- coming in like that's what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. No, we have at this point thousands of Grey's Anatomy texts between us. <laughs> well, I was I was warned not even to to mention uh, what the TV show I've been I've been consistently seeing now. Uh, so maybe I'll wait till the end. That could be our uh, kind of dessert. Uh, to, to mention, uh, because yes, I, I'm sure it will be uh, a, a vortex that we'll fall into. Um, I, I did make it to a drive-in, and that was, of all things, it was a hard day's night in Poughkeepsie, uh, which was hmm. nice. It was unfortunately it was kind of raining for part of it. Have you have you seen something in a in a theater, Nick? Have you gone back? No, I have not. Uh, I'm like you. I'm, I mean, I'm sort of waiting for my program of of shots the pandemic has successfully cowed me. Seems like it's safe as long as, you know, people aren't eating concessions. I feel like the theaters that have 
stricken that from the from the program seem like safer bets than the the ones where people are openly eating inside the theaters makes me feel a little better but i will probably be going on a pretty regular basis i've been thinking about what's that first thing that everyone's going to see when they go back i think you know i have some friends that were so desperate to see literally anything that they were just seeing um whatever garbage has been dumped out over like the last several weeks but i don't know it almost feels like you know, there's like a little bit of pressure writing on what's this, you know, like when, what's that first movie you watch in a new year? Sometimes I, I think about that. I always <laughs> want to start off a new year well with, with something really good. It's like, what's that first thing back in the theater going to be after over a year? Don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the timing will, will work out to be. What'll, what'll be open at the, I hope that it'll be, maybe there'll be something at film forum that'll be good. I know it's like, if you haven't eaten for a long time. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're just like starving for anything. Yeah, I don't know. I'm definitely going in for some trash, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I think as soon as I'm like my vaccine's kicked in, I'll just like see what's at the multiplex and yeah, try. I, yeah, you know, like I want that experience. I think more than than anything. Yeah, I think so too. Especially in terms of repertory too, it's going to be bread and butter classics for the foreseeable future. There's going to be no adventurous programming on that side for several months because you can't justify the cost of oh, playing including print or something for oh my god know. can you imagine yeah. for a 25 percent capacity of something where it might still might not even be full right yeah no it's it's going to be D- dcps of the afi top 100 for the next six months <laughs> yeah yeah no i mean i think is it flc i guess they're re-showing the wong kar wai films yeah although now that I think about it, I guess those have some controversial uh, restoration work. But that's also seems like a somewhat sure bet if, if you're going to go go in. Definitely. Oh, totally. I don't I don't begrudge them. That was going to be a blockbuster series for them last summer. And then even if it's out on Blu-ray, people will will still go. I think it's a good idea that they're showing that in the Tarkovsky, the recent Tarkovsky restoration, which makes sense. People stuff that people want to see on a big screen. Yeah, no, absolutely. Definitely. Um, well, if we can go back indoors for a second, at least in, into, in, into the home. I was really excited when I read about the series that both of you had programmed for the Criterion Channel, because we talked on the last episode about basically looking at the margins and the backgrounds of movies. So, I mean, in, in a way, the, the subject of the series is something that's always on my mind. And I guess, you know, anyone's mind when they're just pouring over the image in front of them. But it's basically the name of this series is Close to Home, How to Make a Movie Without Leaving the House. I mean, just to start off, I, I wonder if you can talk about how you came to choose this as an, as an idea, what the kind of genesis um, of, it, of it was. And, and then my follow up is like, I mean, where, where did you begin? Because it, it seems so hard to choose. Yeah, I mean, Nellie and I both had the same idea for this series separately. And I think that happens to film programmers a lot. You know, we, I don't do full film programming full time anymore, but we always have our our Google Docs and our Excel spreadsheets full of ideas that you want to realize at some point. And they're the ones, the thematic, the high concept series, which I think Nellie and I have a special affection for. We've collaborated on them in the past. We did a a series of movies that were inspirations to and inspired by Vertigo several years ago at BAM. And Nellie's done some really amazing conceptual series as well. So this was one that we both had, but 
it, it's it's something that what do you tie it into? I think in the past, I had thought when I was programming at the quad, maybe you could do this series around the holidays, you know, home for the holidays could be the hook for it because, you know, all all these movies made in homes. But there were too many adventurous movies to play around Christmas time. That's another time of year when you kind of have to play, uh, you know, canonical hits in uh, in repertory. So it was something that I had in the back of my head and just talking with Nelly, I think it came up and made too much sense now, given the state of the world. And we actually talked about it for a while ago. And there's a lead time, of course, in putting these series together. And by the time it even got to now, it's still relevant. People are still in quarantine and kind of still can't leave their houses. Still stuck. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think two key things that I think maybe were when we were talking about it together, where we had the conversation where we realized we both had this idea was um, the Jerry Lewis uh, home productions that MoMA showed many years ago now, maybe three or four years ago now. Yeah. Movies that he made before he was making um, professional pictures, uh, but they still, it's him and his friends and uh, Dean Martins and some uh, Tony Curtis, Janet Lee, but they're making like somewhere between parody films and just sort of like underground films. Um, yeah. That, and they're really incredible. And, you know, one of the incredible things also in the um, MoMA series was they had all of this other footage of they would host red carpet premieres at their houses and parties to show the movies to their friends. And you really just get like a sense of um, this homemade feeling. And I think for me, seeing that with all the pomp and circumstance of Hollywood like even the movie stars, um, you know, really kind of put something together for me. Mm. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Chris. Oh yeah, definitely. And once once we started talking through the idea, because once you have one of these ideas, you have to start putting restrictions on it because there's almost too many movies. There's too many ideas. And we have a couple documentary instances in the series, but by and large, we tried to steer more toward experimental or narrative work and less so something that was just shot in a person's house because it just happened to be their house. Pretty much everything in the series, it's very, it's very purposeful choosing that setting. That's something that we wanted to really focus on. Even something like Portrait of Jenny, which is, sorry, not Portrait of Jenny, Portrait of Jason, excuse me, um, is not something that is about Shirley Clark's apartment necessarily, but it being set there is very important to the the power dynamics at play between the two of them and in that film. So in various ways, the the houses, the settings, the apartments, the backyards, the gardens are all, you know, you don't want to say that they're characters in the movie, but they are doing um, a lot of work in each of these individual films that are not just, oh, they're just shot there because of, necessity right yeah i mean i think you know experimental film so many people shoot domestic scenes diary film there's all sorts of genres that are very much in people's houses but one thing uh, another sort of like animating idea i think we were tossing back and forth was that we were interested in like the friction of it is someone's home and this sort of personal element of it is key to the work but the house has been on some level transformed into a fictional space. So, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, it's not being presented as the person's home in a lot of ways. 
I think there are some exceptions in the program, but we were really interested in the ways in which a personal space is sort of transformed. Yeah, it, and it's super fun in something like That's Life or Mama's Man, where you have some people who are essentially playing themselves or versions of themselves, yeah. the character based on them, and then you have professional actors who are in the mix as well with those non-actors. I mean, in the case of That's Life, Julie Andrews is a obviously an actress, a great one, but she's that's her house. She was married to Blake Edwards, and that's her actual home, but Jack Lemmon's playing the protagonist. And, uh, or in, oh, and also their daughter is playing one of their daughters. Yeah, exactly. So there's you know this fictional element that's thrown into this real life setting. Yeah. I think it's also like kind of interesting in That's Life and the Cassavetes, there is this, um, well, in That's Life in particular, Julie Andrews' performance is so incredible in that movie because yeah, there's, amazing. you know, it's pretty self-lacerating. Um, if you can read uh, Jack Lemmon's character as a stand-in for Blake Edwards, it's just like imagining him like standing in their kitchen being like, Julie, more disdain. (laughs) 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 You are not uh, hating me enough right now. (laughs) And I am being horrible. (laughs) Um, That one, I think in particular, is just such an interesting portrait. There's also even a moment in that movie towards the end where Julie Andrews gets up to sing and then doesn't, which I also feel like is such a meta thing as well. That might be a Blake Edwards movie that people aren't as familiar with. What's the just general sketch of the story? Of, of That's Life? Well, it falls into the, the category of those, you know, those 80s and 90s Blake Edwards movies, which I have a particular affection for. I think some other you know, degenerates and perverts do as well. <laughs> but um, they they are truly astounding personal works made, you know, with his incredible formal mastery. There are these widescreen comedies, you know, just impeccably, beautifully directed, and they get increasingly, um, you know, horny <laughs> and kind of disgusting. And um, he really is kind of all of the things that he probably had to keep in check to some degree in the first couple decades of his career are sort of fully unleashed in those, those movies. And that's life. Yeah. I think, I, I think self lacerating, like Nelly said, is, is exactly the, the, the right word for that. I think the log line on like letterboxd or something is just, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it's um, a man has a um, acute case of male menopause. <laughs> which is (laughs) accurate (laughs) i mean he's going through not even a midlife he's 60 so i suppose it isn't a midlife crisis but this kind of um it's his 60th birthday and um Mm. he's someone who's it seems has always been narcissistic what another reason why i think this is like a key one for the series is uh the jack lemon character who's married to julie andrews in the movie sort of presumably the stand-in is um an architect who feels as though um, he's never been able to make a house that's truly his own. He's always working for a client, which seems like such an ex- <laughs> obvious um, metaphor for making films in Hollywood. And oh my god, I am I am obsessed with the thinly veiled, <laughs> you know, artist characters in movies. I mean, Hong Sang Soo does it. He just gave up after a while because he was like. 
there's only so many times I can have it be like a sculptor or a painter and not just a filmmaker. So I just got to give up. Like he's just a filmmaker now, but it's always <laughs> so funny when it's like, could not be more blatant. It's like, Oh, I have to make this house for somebody else. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, the story is just, everyone comes, uh, his children come back, uh, to, for this big birthday celebration. And, um, his son is actually an actor and stuff, but whatever. Yeah. And then it, you know, he is sort of spiraling, um, you know, going to priests, going to doctors, like what's wrong with me. Um, it almost sounds like a Jerry Lewis movie or something, but like um, what's wrong with me. Um, he's just in this horrible depression and everyone is sort of um, suffering from his state of mind. Yeah. And that is basically the movie. <laughs> I actually, I saw, SOB. I don't know what that was a part of, but I think it was on Criterion sometime last year. So this, I'm, I'm curious to see how how much further things have curdled after that and into the 80s. Oh man, I I highly recommend uh, his remake of Truffaut's uh, The Man Who Loved Women with Burt Reynolds, uh, Blind Date with Bruce Willis, kind of like an LA After Hours with with Bruce Willis. Oh man, they're treasures await nick for you in the the 80s and 90s blake edwards films yeah i mean i don't want to go off on 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 a tangent about the the state of the studio comedy in the 80s and 90s but i mean it is just kind of amazing to me that a filmmaker like that is just not included in in a lot of discussions like that they seem to exist in this like kind of parallel universe in in many ways it's it's inevitably seems surprising to people when you when you talk about some of these movies like oh he was still making movies at that point you know that that sort of thing well, I mean, th- I think the movies, th- those movies in particular, are both simultaneously behind and ahead of the time. And so he was just this mm. odd man out. It it feels like because that level of, you know, formal mastery feels like a holdover of another era of studio filmmaking, just how gorgeously directed they were. But, you know, it's sort of like those late Billy Wilder films or something else where it's like this odd mashup of sensibilities with like the freedom of a new era and they're very much old man films and that they're pervy and kind of gross. And that's part of what's interesting about them. But uh, (laughs) yeah, he, you you can sort of see that he's ahead of the time in a certain sense in terms of comedically and, and, and the things he's talking about and tapping into that you see in like Albert Brooks and Larry David later on. And a lot of this male neurosis and anxiety but no one was making movies that looked like that. So it's just uh, that that mashup of sensibilities. That's part of why they're so special, I think, because there aren't really anything else out there like them. But anyway, I mean, that 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 dovetails very nicely with the idea of, of course, he would be a perfect person to be making a movie in his own home in this era. You know, that's that's exactly what he would he would be the one of those filmmakers. And it's the only one in the series, the only movie kind of like that that's a studio comedy in that way even those jerry lewis movies that we were talking about those weren't released those weren't even seen until moma showed them a year or two ago people didn't even know those existed those were done on on the dl this is you know edwards really trying to you know do something personal on that level at a on a grander scale yeah and nelly what what were you what were you about to say before Oh, just, you know, talking about Edwards as this uh, sort of increasingly perverse in the 80s, I think um, proud proud perverts are a strong thread in the series. Because, <laughs> 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 uh, like, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, 
there's obviously like uh, artistic reasons to make a movie in your house. There's also practical reasons if you're actually making something that's too weird for anyone else to, to, to mm-hmm. not only for anyone else to like really be funding it or something, but really for you even to be showing it to anyone that you wouldn't have over. <laughs> 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 I think with that, you get into you know, multiple maniacs, pink narcissus. Um, oh yeah. Even bad girls go to hell. Like there mm-hmm. is this, um, like I said, people who are, um, you know, have reclaimed the word pervert. <laughs> Well, and, and with with those movies in particular, it's not even that. Yes, of course. I think in a lot of these things, there's a budgetary aspect. You had to shoot in your own home. It's cheaper to do that. But also, it might be embarrassing if whoever you whose house you were borrowing to shoot your movie saw it at the end of the day and saw what you were doing in it. You know that sometimes these things are so strange and perverse that there's no other place that you can set them but your your own home. Right just jumping back to like portrait of jason i mean i wonder if you could talk a bit what you meant when you were saying there's a reason why a kind of very soul-bearing portrait like that would be filmed in her apartment as opposed to you know somewhere else yeah with with that one i think the movie would be very different if it was in his apartment than if it was in hers i think that what that movie is how it turned out um a lot of that is because of you know the power dynamics at play shooting in her own space and not his and that's that's a very interesting question. Most documentaries are not, um, you know, when people are interviewed in Talking Heads in a lot of films, it's done in their own space. It's done in their office, in their workspace, something else. What happens when that script is flipped and the subject is in the filmmaker's environment? Yeah, and also, you know, drinking with the filmmaker in her environment, you know, like there's very much like a conviviality uh, you know, he's the guest to a certain mm-hmm. extent, um, but that kind of gets turned on him at some point. Yeah. Um, like his like increasing comfort in the space that suddenly sort of turns. I also think the Chelsea Hotel is an interesting, uh, where Portrait of Jason was, uh, was shot, mm-hmm. is an interesting example of a place that was many people's homes and many things were shot there. But um, it because again, you could do a whole series on just the well, anthology. Did do a whole series on things that were shot at the Chelsea Hotel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's. I mean, that's really interesting. Like how how at home the the filmmaker is in the space, how that affects the the general outlook and, and perspective of it. I guess the kind of joyful version of of that or joyful example of that is is Italian American, which is I just endlessly. <laughs> amusing and, and and really just kind of heartwarming visit coming home i mean i was really glad to see that in the lineup you know in a way it's like not um it's funny because i think the process is so um front and center in the making of that movie that you know you can see the camera you can see the setup like that's all part of it that even though it doesn't have quite the same you know it's not like scorsese transformed his parents place the way that like pink narcissus was transformed but there are these moments like when she's like well when can i move the furniture back i need to vacuum before mm-hmm. you guys come back tomorrow mm-hmm. um that there is this real <laughs> sense of the um the imposition i guess and that while it looks completely natural the space has actually been altered to accommodate the cameras mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think there's like a whole sub series within this of filmmakers going home shooting in their own and and by that i mean their childhood homes 
that that there's there's a difference within the series of the films that are shot in the house they're currently living in and the house they grew up in or might still live in in some capacity you know you you like the oxides or mama's man or italian american or something like that where there's another added layer of personal history something else that we couldn't technically include in the series but is on criterion and is kind of a cousin to the series like a phantom selection is lami the the deplachin documentary about um his family's house that uh, i encourage people to to check out as well oh that's on criterion oh, i didn't know that it's sneakily on criterion it, it's it's a special feature yeah yeah ah okay <laughs> that's the easter egg for <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well c- could you talk a bit about the the oxides series because that's uh, that's also terrific to have here just to make it you know available to people because it's it's just i just i think it's kind of like a monumental work it's just one of those films that everyone should see but seem to be a little hard hard for people to, to get access to that's the filmmaker basically roping in her family or to make something that's sort of between documentary and fiction not that we have to put labels but i guess i've always read it as it's sort of yeah it is between you know it's like uh based based on a true story (laughs) (laughs) ripped from the headlines (laughs) where it's these kind of process both are these kind of process-based films the first of her father uh work who works in like leather goods at his workbench sort of doing his work and sort of the sort of chit chat about about that work about sort of how things are changing about like the various the different processes involved in his work and it sort of I think really goes to the next level with Oxide 2 where his workspace when he's not working on the um, leather goods becomes sort of the family's communal table and in the second one the father, the mother, and the filmmaker are sitting at the table preparing dumplings for a little over two hours. And it is this sort of, again, family conversation, a lot of conversation about the dumplings, about different wrapping techniques, you know, all these things as the camera just makes these kind of steady 45 degree pans back and forth. Apparently she has eight Mm. oxides planned. I can't wait. That's incredible. I didn't realize it was that many. Yeah, I I had heard that Oxide 3 was on its way at some point, um, but Mm. it's like the you know, Marvel eat your heart out. (laughs) (laughs) The OCU. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She should do one of those, you know, terrifying press releases where they, it charts out the next eight years of of releases and each one is a different oxide. Yeah. Yeah. That's because that's why I was kind of, hesitating because i actually got the last i couldn't remember if there was an oxide three that already existed because I, I feel like i've been hearing about it been in the works do we know what that is about i don't i mean i feel like i've seen it pop up before and like clicked and then realized it's like at a you know at the market thing still trying to get funding or, or something mm. at the festival not actually premiering there which if she's looking for a lot of funding for it makes you really wonder what the plans are for Oxide 3 because the first two are probably two of the cheapest movies that have ever yeah. been made. Which or, is not, you know, not maybe it's just like them, development but... time, but I feel like I've yeah. seen it in like labs or whatever, you know, all those things that, at film festivals that aren't the movies that are playing. Those are part of another interesting strand or substrand in the series. You know, how, how formal some of the films are, you know, like the, the, the Ackerman films. Um, the oxides, 
versus things that are maybe a little looser Mm -hmm. or portraits of the space handheld working with the restrictions of the rooms how are you handling shooting that how far back you know if you want to have kind of a you know flat head-on angle of something how much room do you have to play with in the the real life space i mean i i think these movies call into tension the idea of shooting on location more especially in in interiors more than most other ones do i was just going to add that i mean mm-hmm. oxide is is shot in in scope which is just i mean kind of incredible to think of in in, in the space that it's it's, it's it's shot in well that's how you have to fit the table in there's no way that table is going to fit in unless it's in, <laughs> it's in two three five mama's man and loft are an interesting sort of example of this you know Mama's Man was shot by um, Azazel Jacobs, who's the son of Ken and Flo Jacobs, uh, famous avant-garde film figures. And um, the movie is about him coming back to the loft he grew up in, sort of escaping the, um, the adult life he's built for himself in Los Angeles um, and just sort of coming home and then staying and not really, you know, facing why he hasn't returned to his wife and child. And... Um, you know, in the film, you get this sense that this loft that they live in is this really special place, and it's just, you know, packed to the rafters with um, film reels and knickknacks and books and records. It's just absolutely cramped, you know? And, you know, with all this kind of, like, much-loved material um, and, like, very much like an artist's life type thing too that you can just feel the sort of that collection as being sort of part of this artistic practice of his parents and Loft is a film that Ken Jacobs made around the same time that Mama's Man is filmed and while Mama's Man is like an American indie Loft is very much a structural film that is does this kind of strobing uh, 360 degree turns Um, around the loft sort of giving you this other picture of the space is almost this like sort of abstract world which I I think seeing a loft right after Mama's Man really sort of gave me even more of a sense of that space the space sort of from very two very different perspectives yeah it's almost sounds like there's an echo analogy to the difference between Soap Maville and uh, La Chambre a little bit just in terms of how Ackerman is you know, sh- shooting and, and framing and, and dealing with a, an interior uh, formally. It's a kind of like, I mean, not to be like uh, reductive, but it's almost like a before and after encounter with Michael Snow or something like, like that, that mm-hmm. they're just different poles of, of approach in those two. Yeah. No, I actually hadn't thought about the connection between those two, but you're right. Yeah. Yeah. The Ocarina my Maville is a movie I think about a lot just because of her, I don't know what you call it, like Dada kind of babble track she has over it, um, mm-hmm. which <laughs> I, I don't know is uh, I, I sometimes feels like what my internal monologue is when I'm just cleaning or something. It feels like a filler track that she just ended up using somehow, um, and I like how it becomes increasingly um, un- unhinged yeah. as as it goes along. Yeah, that one might be the most covid portrait of any of the films in the series <laughs> of a person <laughs> going absolutely mad inside their space yeah and actually i just i noticed that when i was looking it up uh, images of it this <laughs> i don't know if it's on purpose but someone took a still that shows her uh, i guess on a, on a subway platform or something and she has her kind of kerchief 
wrapped around her head. And, and right next to her is a picture of a Smurf. For some reason, there's a visual <laughs> echo there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, you know, one other movie, uh, I mean, because I, I, I hadn't actually thought about it in, in this way, uh, is Faces. That one was shot at John and Jenna. Yeah. Uh, John Cassavetes and Jenna Rowland's house. I'm not on a first name basis with them. <laughs> it is, uh, yeah, their their home. Which which pops up in other yeah. Cassavetes productions as well. Yeah, for some reason, the image that comes to mind when I think of that movie is always just this the stairs, which I recall as being like right yes. in front of the the front door. Yep. Just as this, uh, you know, there's just something just as as an emotional space. It's it's it just kind of says everything and, and the and the dimness of it somehow uh so that's just that's very potent in my, my memory of that film you know yes i i think something you were saying before too like um watching that movie the living space is so like sort of covered with like art and like you know things on the mantle and you know if you're a fan of their work it's so hard not to just be like i want to like have a high res still and like try and identify everything. <laughs> there's so much, it's like, it's a very lived in space, you know, it's um, as much as it's a lot of these movies, like something like bad girls go to hell. It uses like a couple apartments and transforms them into like a million apartments, you know, in mm-hmm. a million different cities. And as you know, obviously that requires a bit of an anonymity of, of the space, but um it's very lived in in faces and that ends up being sort of just an you know especially when you're watching it at home and you can like pause and kind of look uh it's hard not to want to sort of obsess over interior decorating (laughs) (laughs) some reason i'm flashing back to uh, i'm forgetting what altman movie it is from the 70s when i when i suddenly realized that this this weird like i don't know it's almost like a metallic bramble it was like a flying bird thing I had found. And I thought, oh, this is really strange. And then it pops up on the wall in, in forgetting which Oldman movie. Uh, yeah, it's it's also strange when you just kind of recognize something that had been lost to the thrift shop ages. There's like that, uh, there's that goofy looking portrait of a man that I feel like isn't like every Preston Sturges movie and like mm. bought it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is, is that something that we probably like we've all done more of during the last year is watching movies and really honing in on interior decorating and design as you're watching movies across different eras and noticing things stand out. I mean, I was watching um, The China Syndrome a month ago or so, and Jane Fonda's character has a Gladys Goose lamp, one of those plastic goose lamps from the 70s, which have cropped up in a few things. I think there's one in Beeswax, the Boljowski film, and a friend of ours, mine and Nellie's, has one of those as well. And so when you, you're especially attuned to these little details that are seemingly, you know, just texture in the backgrounds of shots, but are saying so much about these characters now. We're watching, you know, I, I found myself watching a lot of narrative films and looking more at the sets than the actors, I think, over the last several months. I made a, I made this joke on Twitter already, but... Um... It's still true that I feel like uh, I'm, when this is all over, I'm just going to program a series of movies that have cool fish tanks in them. <laughs> so many good fish tanks <laughs> that we've watched. <laughs> movie after movie with like an incredible fish tank. 
I think it, I, I think it's just because we're noticing it more. Yeah. I think I think I think eighty five percent of films have fish tanks in them because they're so cinematic. Yeah. It's a great thing to put in a shot. Yeah, of course you get to shoot through the fish tank. You can shoot over the fish tank. Yeah, you can talk. Like there can be some plot point where someone has to come through the fish. Like there's a. It's, I mean, listen, filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone knows, no i mean i i feel like we were joking about this in our movie club but it's like it is chekhov's fish tank every time where it's like if there's a fish tank in the first act of a movie that thing is getting smashed by act three like someone is falling into it or taking a hammer to it yeah or, or like whatever be dead and then you're gonna realize you know like that something yeah yeah wrong. again there, there, there's yeah. there's gonna be like a body part like 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 floating in it yeah absolutely every time yeah, red water. That's always the. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I don't know if they said yeah. NYU. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Get spike on the horn. Yeah. Oh, always leave enough money. Yeah. Always leave a line item for the aquarium. So I guess we've sort of talked about most of the movies in the in the home close to home series. Um, while I still have you, I I might just kind of quiz you about all the other things you're doing as well. One of which is, uh, well, I guess, Chris, you've been at movie now. I'm working on the distribution side at movie. So I'm not programming on the, the channel itself. I mean, I've do a bunch of different things and now working more on the industry side of stuff. I'm kind of heading the, the U S side of, of the theatrical distribution of which we'll be putting movies out into theaters as well as on movie but um it's it's nice you know it's it's a it's a shift i think for me thinking about streaming in the way i have been i think for nelly as well because nelly and i come from backgrounds of programming series at movie theaters and thinking about movies and movie theaters and we care so much about theaters that's still i think our first love and what we want to be doing but right now sometimes it's more feasible to be programming series on streaming like on criterion or things on movie and those things can work in concert with one another so i think it's as especially over the last year like i was at kino lorber previously and we started the whole virtual cinema initiative that now movie theaters all have their own streaming platforms and i hope that they start using them in really adventurous ways i think that the better the theater the more adventurous the programmer the more interesting the virtual space will be for those theaters as well. Cause there's a lot of opportunity that's been opened over the last, you know, year and a half or so that I've been kind of waiting for art house theaters to kind of latch on to that because for so long streaming has been seen as this direct competitor to the theaters where I don't know, I think that you have to accept the reality of this is the world we're in. People watch movies in a lot of different ways and you should welcome that. You should get people more in the habit of watching movies in different settings. And I think that that's good. I think someone that, that's more apt to watch a movie in a theater is more apt to watch something on streaming and more apt to buy a Blu-ray. And that's the kind of audience that we all want to cultivate, that we're not competing, that movies not competing with theaters, movies not competing with Criterion. I think people should have a movie subscription and a Criterion subscription and be going to see stuff at an art house and buying Kino Lerber Blu-rays at the same time. You know, it's like, I think all that stuff feeds in together and um, what I'm trying to do at Mubi and I think what Nelly's trying to do, we're all kind of in this same 
space to do is get people thinking that way. Yeah, I think, you know, it's easy when you live in New York to sort of be like overwhelmed by, you know, before COVID, overwhelmed by the um, amount of options you have in terms of like, you know, what you're going to do that evening and what you're going to see. But like, I think the last series I did on Criterion, the Tell Me series was something that was on was at Metrograph in New York. And then a year or two after that went on to Criterion. And I feel like there is something, maybe a little blinkered thing on my part of just not really thinking about how annoying it must be if you don't live in New York and like Mm -hmm. you're reading coverage and film stuff about like series where rare prints are showing or whatever, or even DCPs are showing that are just never going to come to where you are. And, um, you know, as much as I feel like everyone's going to want to get back to supporting local things um, and should when uh, this all ends, I I do feel like it would be nice to sort of recognize that people live outside the like three biggest cities in the country uh, as well and uh, start to think about ways in which um, that sort of divide could be bridged with something like criterion where it's like yeah seeing it in a theater is a great privilege but it shouldn't like just not be on streaming and that that was the other thing with those touring retrospectives that would open in new york and they'd be complete you know be 35 films and then they go to austin and it's five films it's like the greatest hits of it because Mm -hmm. it's really hard to sustain a series of that size and scope in another market. They don't have kind of maybe the resources necessary or the number of people who live there who might be able to support it or any number of things. Or if you're the only art house theater, maybe you don't want to dedicate a whole month to one series and that's the only exactly. thing that anyone in that area can exactly. see. You're doing with your one theater what like 10 theaters in New York are doing. Yeah, and and as like, I think Nellie and I have been finding this real time, especially like this is... I think one of my first forays into streaming programming, this Criterion series, but Nelly did it with the amazing Tell Me series, which is legendary now. But I think it was Dave Kerr, Nelly, who was giving you props on Twitter, and rightly so, for it being such a curated series on streaming, which I think is still a rarity in a way, because um, it's an entirely new rights issue when you think about it from this perspective that a lot of repertory theaters are used to getting rights for theatrical screenings and print. And it's an entirely different system with Mm -hmm. streaming that you have to go through often different rights holders. And in some ways it probably seems easier to just get an MP4 file and put that up on a streaming platform. In some ways it's so much harder because different people own different movies in different ways and it might be simpler to put together a 35 millimeter retrospective of someone than it is to do something virtually. And that's why I think you get a lot of, it's funny, like I think streaming programming is still in its infancy. Um, I think that Penelope at Criterion does a really great job. And I think uh, Danny, my coworker at Movie, does a really great job, but it's very hard to kind of cull programs and pull things together in that same way. I think it's why you see a lot of retrospectives of, an actor or a director who worked at one studio, maybe, because it's easier. You can go to Sony and you can license 10 movies in one fell swoop, and it's just simpler. It's a lot harder to go to all these different rights holders who have all these different films and compile a program 
from a lot of different sources, which is what, you know, close to home is, it's what tell me was, you know, we're, we're still very early, I think, in the world of adventurous streaming programming, which is exciting, because there's a lot more to be done. But I think people, uh, programmers, especially virtual programmers are trying to find their footing and get a sense of how all of this works, because theatrical programmers have been doing this for decades now. But this is an entirely different system. We like the series really wouldn't have been what it is without Penelope. She's such an incredible person to work with at Criterion. And yeah. she suggested a couple of movies that are in the program. Um, she always mm-hmm. is able to track down the rights holders, the filmmakers. Um, it's so seamless from our, I, from our perspective, I think Chris and I both were the types of programmers who always had to do our own print research and rights clearance and everything. We didn't work at places where we had like an army of assistants or anything. Um, so it's mm-hmm. actually like really incredible working at Criterion where I feel like it's such a machine and Penelope so on top of it. It's it's something where as as we increasingly start to think about programming in the virtual space, it is a completely different beast. You know, how how a repertory series is put together on a streaming platform how long is it up on the platform? Different movies are probably going to be up for different amounts of time because you can get di- different licenses and different contracts. You know, it's not like a physical space that Nellie and I have the most amount of experience with. So we're kind of learning on the fly, thanks to Penelope. Um, but I think a lot of people are. And and like I was saying before, I think a lot of good uh, virtual programming is yet to come if people are willing, just like with physical programming, to do the legwork and the research in order to make good things happen. Yeah. It's 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 funny because when you think about the the financial aspect, which is so crucial for putting together repertory programming and the budgets you have to work with, oftentimes most of the movies are in a very similar range in terms of it's going to be a minimum guarantee of a few hundred dollars versus a percentage of the box office profits. And on streaming, there is no percentage of the box office profits. It's all going to be a flat fee. And the ones for studio movies on streaming are astronomical sometimes, like so unbelievably expensive in the way that if you want to show The Shining in a movie theater, it would cost you $350 flat versus 35% or something. If you want to show The Shining on streaming, it's going to cost you thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. And so what does all of that mean now? How do we grapple with that? How does that affect programming? What are you able to do? Um, because there's a lot of other questions that come with that, as opposed to a one-off screening of a print or a DCP that has a key that's locked, so you, it can't be stolen or replicated. Um, it just means something very different in the eyes of these studios and rights holders. And so it's a it's a minefield. I mean, it's very, very different, I think, than what Nelly and I are like, okay, every movie basically costs the same to have in a, in a series, generally. You know, it's often they're all around the same range, not the case with the, with the streaming series like this. I will say, though, on, on the flip side of that is when you're dealing with individual artists, um, to be able to put a short on streaming, it's a much bigger payday. <laughs> and it's like five years of someone's short film being available, for example, when normally it's like, oh, this short gets booked how, how often after the first year or two of its life? And you're able to give someone, you know, something a little substantial, at least, um, compared to just like, Fifty dollars mm-hmm. trickling in here or there. Um, I think that 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 actually is really nice. Which which also is really interesting in terms of how that affects 
the program over time because let's say a series could stay up on Criterion or somewhere else, but maybe not all the movies that are here at this first month of Close to Home are going to be there in six months. In fact, I know they all won't, won't be there. So some of them will be leaving over time. And so the program itself becomes this amorphous thing and changes as opposed to a set week-long repertory series at a New York theater where you have one week to see these things, they're in and they're out. Here, you're going to have things that are going to be up. Maybe they get repurposed for other contexts. I think that's a big part of virtual programming as well is, well, this movie fits in this series, but can we have another series that it goes in as well so we can license other movies around it, kind of find different uses for it and promote it in different ways? Um, yeah, can we suggest this, like, uh, the Light of Look Sunday mm-hmm. short goes with the future or... Maybe, you know, when the license is expiring on one of the shorts and tell me they decide they want to do a retrospective of that whole filmmaker's work. Like there's many ways that these things can kind of re um, resurrect themselves, Easter themed. Yeah. And, 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 and how does this stuff change when you're talking about an artist that often works in celluloid in 16 millimeter and it projects their movies almost exclusively as such. And then it goes into streaming in a different form. There are some artists that absolutely won't allow that, but some are more flexible and want their work to be seen in other contexts. So raises all of these new issues now with a movie or a criterion where that's a possibility. A lot of what movie, what my colleague Danny has done at movie and it's amazing is Programming a lot of work that is gallery world adjacent or in film festivals, things that the filmmakers maybe thought they would only be showing ever on 16 millimeter. And now they're showing on digital files on a streaming site that maybe only previously it was people who are writing about the films might have access to a Vimeo link or something. But otherwise, you know, you have to see it in a certain setting. Now it's possible to to watch it in this way. So it does open it up for a lot of other people, but raises a lot of questions at the same time especially about the idea of curation. I think Criterion and Movie are two of the only places left that are actually curating programs of movies. Um, you know, maybe different places will create original content. Criterion did their kind of Meet the Filmmakers series, like uh, Alex Perry's Paul Schrader film, or Michael Chaikin made his Safety Brothers film. But a lot of other places are not interested in curation anymore. A lot of other streaming sites are, that's not the way that they're going. They only want to make original things. They're not interested in titles from other distributors from film history. And so where does that go? Does it completely disappear if there aren't places that are willing to bring together work from a lot of different studios and artists and time periods and countries to talk to one another and reflect on one another? It's like, what's the kind of the narrative of film history that's being written right now? I mean, I think another thing that's actually worth mentioning, it's sort of like the less uh, intellectually exciting part of curating, but, you know, one thing Chris and I did when we had sort of the idea, uh, a general concept of the idea, was we went through everything that was already on the channel, you know, because mm-hmm. we would do, I would do the same thing if... Um, if I worked at MoMA and there were prints that were um, available without a fee, obviously you have to consider that they're a good way to like fill out the series. Um, You know, looking through what was already on the channel became like, you know, it's a no brainer that all of these go in. And the more good series they, you know, they do so many good series. There's so much interesting stuff there, but Mm -hmm. you know, talking about that repackaging, it's like, building this foundation like layers and layers of foundation and then you know 
months from now, if someone else is coming up with a program and they want to include a Doris Wishman, there's already one there. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that that kind of practicality and the real world calculus that goes into programming often doesn't get discussed. I mean, I think a lot of people think of it as, oh, you get to pick whatever you want to show and you show it. And it's like, well, no. I mean, there are most of the work is not coming up with the idea or even the list of movies. It's the balancing act of what's available and how does availability work with your dream version of the program? And do you need to even excise things from a series that are available, but you feel like it's too top heavy in a certain direction that you might not want to have so many films by this particular filmmaker, this time period, this country. So, you know, that, that lends its own, you know, its own kind of flavor to everything that we do. So let's talk just a little bit about a uh, screen slate as well. Um, so Nellie, so you're uh, working on projects at screen slate. Well, um, John Derringer, who runs screen slate relaunched the website. Um, a little more than a month ago, I think now. And um, it's, it looks great. And, you know, it's new and improved in many, many ways, um, including uh, more access to articles, uh, just a a new configuration, basically. And one of the, the new features is a virtual cinema, you know, in the sort of new landscape, uh, we noticed a lot of distributors sort of were thinking, outside of traditional movie theaters for where they were um, having their movies for sale that, you know, you could rent it through a bookstore or a, um, a cafe or, you know, all a community space sort of, you know, I think hyper targeting different audiences and things for different films. And one of the things I think both John and I uh, found kind of frustrating in the sort of, post-COVID landscape of trying to figure out what was um, streaming was, you know, it's every distributor has their own website. Every movie theater has their own website. Like there's some consolidation around certain platforms and things, but it, it's kind of hard. Like people that I know who watch a lot of movies seemed totally flummoxed if they didn't work in the movie industry about how to actually make a rental. Mm. And, um, you know, I, it's a new thing and I think people are figuring it out, but I think another, you know, issue is that, um, a lot of movie theaters would just have everything available. So it wouldn't be like the way it usually is when you look at film forums website or whatever, where it's only what fits in, in the theaters and you kind of get a sense of like, we only had space for five and these are the five we chose. Instead, it's like, we have space for everything that's come out in the past three months. Yeah, We were just getting the impression um, from people that that was very overwhelming, even though that is the model that was making economic sense for theaters, which, you know, they need to figure out how to make it make sense, you know, obviously. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we thought that one function of the virtual cinema on Screen Slate could be just sort of keeping our selection very small, like as if it were a movie theater, right? Um, we typically have six things up at a time. And we have a one in one out policy. So in a way it becomes both a sort of way to sort of promote exciting new releases, like a critics pick type thing. And also a way to support screen slates work, which, you know, 
um, is all primarily at this point supported by um, members and um, a few grants, but um, we've started paying writers and um, are trying to sort of build it into something a little more sustainable. The virtual cinema just becomes a great way to sort of both support new releases in a way that is responsive to the issues that we think new releases are having with how people connect with them and also offering a way for people to support screen slate that isn't just giving us the five dollars a month or whatever but actually you're supporting through a rental so it becomes you know like I think the virtual cinemas have been throughout the pandemic for so many theaters and distributors a supportive ecosystem where um, a lot of things that hopefully people want to flourish um, are all able to get a little piece of the pie. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was like the main thing that virtual cinema change was rethinking about where your streaming dollars go when you buy something on streaming. And let's be honest, like people watch things in so many different ways now, even on the streaming. If we're just talking streaming, if you look at the last 20 things I watched, I mean, there are torrents, there are things I bought from huge platforms on TVOD. There are things I, I watched on AVOD, which is like an ad comes up during the movie. There are files that friends sent me. You know, it, it is just like, it's completely all over the map. And it's really nice, I think, when people, even if they're not buying things all the time through a, a virtual cinema, they at least have to think about every time they are paying for a rental, quote unquote, of a movie, where the money's going, who it's going to, and could it be going to an independent cinema that they really like in real life or an institution like ScreenSlate, that's awesome, or to a bigger player, you know? And I think that that's nice to kind of reframe the the thinking about that and not just like a mindless buy of, of something. Totally. I mean, you know, I feel like so much of the pandemic has been like, what's the worst case scenario? And then being like, wow, actually reality is worse than what I thought the worst case scenario would be. Yeah. Um, hmm. But virtual cinema, it's like, there was definitely a chance that like all of these movies just would have just gotten licensed to Amazon. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that they would have like disappeared completely, you know? I mean, it's like... Yeah. The, the the best thing about the virtual cinema period that's happened is that the movies are being marketed by the individual theaters so its theaters can go directly to their member base, to their loyal clientele and say, we believe in this, we really like this. And I think you're right, Nelly, like the, we talked about this a little bit, but the, like the screen slate approach of doing fewer things and keeping it really curated is smarter in the end, because people just, they do get overwhelmed. Like a virtual cinema with 30 titles in it quickly turns into a queue on a, on an SVOD platform where you don't end up watching anything because it's, uh, it's overwhelming the options that you have and mm. you are able to do cool repertory stuff as a virtual cinema because the rules are different, which is like very cool. Like you can play the mad Fox from American genre film archive in a way that almost a, an SVOD can't because you have a different right situation with them as a virtual cinema than a streaming platform would have. So it's easier, yeah. it's easier, cheaper, and sometimes possible in a way for you to do it in a way where it wouldn't be for a streaming platform to put that movie up, which is yeah. cr crazy to think about, but that's just the reality of it. No, that actually gets back to something we were talking about before about the difference between streaming rights and theatrical rights. You have this other thing where it's like, 
everything we're booking for the Screen Slate Virtual Cinema, we're booking as if we were a theater, not as if we're a streaming site. Mm-hmm. So the prices remain low, which is, I mean, to me, it almost seems like this is a loophole that will eventually get closed. <laughs> but um, mm. it is kind of in, like, you know, if you were to license something to be sold on you know, Amazon, iTunes, et cetera, it would be much more expensive than licensing it to be rented on a virtual cinema platform. Yeah. Hmm. Because there's this sort of like thing that everyone's agreed upon that these are sort of cinemas, not streaming platforms. Right. And and how will that change once theaters are back at 100% capacity and continue to have a virtual component along with their physical? Because all of them are going to keep it or they should. I mean, it would be smart of theaters to not forego that element of the business and keep it and cultivate that audience. Like it's, it's very silly that like a big piece of the pie has been given over to bigger players for so long and independent theaters have been missing out on it. I feel like now is a time where they can kind of carve out a little bit of it for themselves. So maybe this is like paranoid thinking, Chris, cause you seem more optimistic about this than mm-hmm. I do. But I guess the one thing I do worry about a little bit is, you know, understandably, like when people come back from COVID, mm-hmm. you're going to have to play it somewhat safe or, you know, kind of like yep. swing for the bleachers, whatever that phrase is, fences. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with your programming. And it almost seems like the sort of obvious thing that would happen is the movies you're showing in the theater are the larger movies. And if that's right. not a Marvel movie, like it's the Wes Anderson movie, for example, in right. less context. And right. the smaller movies that normally have like a chance of getting in there, you know, on the, the smallest screen or whatever, mm. those become the virtual rentals. So like the, I don't know, the, this is a, not a burial, it's a resurrection. Mm-hmm. just now become something that's a virtual cinema release, not a cinema cinema release. And like right. to me, that's the thing that's like this. I understand, you know, people are going to have to get back up on their feet, but this idea of being able to be showing the new movie by the small distributor without actually having to show it <laughs> in your cinema right. seems like something that would be very enticing, but also it's, it's a little heartbreaking for someone who's always loved to see these small, be able to see these small movies with an audience. Absolutely. And I think that's where distributors can and will have to hold the line where you say, I will not open a movie straight to your virtual cinema. I require a sh- one show a day. It could even be just one show a day, maybe even a weekend of shows. And then you can move me over to your virtual cinema because without that physical presence to almost serve as a as promotion for the run, the movie is not... It, like, the grosses are, are noticeably lower on virtual cinema. They just are. We all kind of know that. That's just the reality of the situation. So... The impetus is on the distributors to demand a physical presence for those runs, however limited it is, before they ever make their way into the the virtual realm, or else they will just go there and die. And I think those distributors will do that. They they can and they should. If if these theaters want these movies that are really good, 
they can find a way to make it work. And that's not about getting a full schedule for seven days a week. Often that's not a real, you know, that's, that's not going to be a reality for any of these places, but finding a limited schedule, something else, getting that attention, getting that excitement, getting trailered on screen before other movies as promotion and saying, ah, man, I missed it. It closed on Thursday, but I can go see it on their virtual cinema at a different price afterwards. I think that that's going to be, that's, that's the, the fight that's coming um, as, as theaters kind of reopen and have these virtual platforms. Do theaters use a virtual platform for repertory only? You know, do, are they even playing new movies on it? Are they doing retrospectives of filmmakers that promote the new releases in the same way that we have done that in physical venues that we've programmed in the past where it's like, Oh, there's a new Petzold movie coming out. Let's do a Petzold retrospective. That's a thing that happens all the time. You know, we're doing a Petzold mm-hmm. retrospective on movie next month in order to promote uh, his new film. That's not even our movie or anything, but it's like we'll feed into the attention of that, you know? Yeah, that that hybrid model sounds like something that could work. And I, I think the sort of limited showtimes per day was just not something I'd thought about as yeah. a way of sort of easing back into it. And, you know, I would like to reiterate when I was saying like all these theaters have like too many movies, no one can navigate it. The reason that ScreenSlate can have a small thing is that we're a small organization that doesn't have a big payroll, doesn't have rent, it doesn't have no. all of the various things that like these theaters have been shouldering through this entire pandemic. And having a lot of titles is the way that you make the economics of virtual cinema make sense. Yeah, for us, it's like gravy. So we're able to just use it as a, a promotional thing and not really think about making it more than break even. Yeah. 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 I mean, but, but like, thank God, honestly, for like just screen slate generally, I was thinking about this the other day, where does one go for new good writing on older film in this country? It's screen slate it's uh the movie notebook which like gina and danny are doing a, a, a great job of you know gina especially our friend gina Tellaroli, filmmaker critic writer she's one of the editors of the movie notebook and is curating an amazing lineup of people to write for us on older film Wh- where are the other venues where, where is the place where you can write about this and people will read it where you can like give attention to older films it's almost non-existent and it's really depressing that that's the case yeah it's, it's a pretty uh depressing state of affairs because one thing i was if, if there was to be at, at any kind of bright spot to the, the past year it's that well now maybe we could put you know <laughs> movies not from the last year on the same level uh, as as mm-hmm. you know new releases and given that we know everyone is is watching them you know because that's the, those are part of the choice but instead it just seems that a kind of flattening a- occurred where i i don't i people just made the calculation that they would write about again still the new releases and especially the ones that have the biggest marketing pushes uh, behind them it's, it's just it's always a delight every day to have the surprise of uh, what what screen slate is, is covering I, I have to say it's never like the easy choice necessarily either. I, so I, I always really like that. I think John and, uh, you know, did an incredible job as COVID started with thinking about how to reimagine it because, you know, mm. it had obviously, as we all know, had been uh, a pick of the day of something that was playing in New York. And um, 
I feel like the coverage got like even more expansive with Mm -hmm. um, the pandemic where they were able to sort of start looking at like, you know, different like phenomena online or, you know, uh, stuff that isn't a movie uh, that C-SPAN five words thing. Did you guys see that article? No. What was that? I'll send it around. Uh, (laughs) It's this like a Twitter bot that takes sections of C-SPAN and then finds the five words that are said most and cuts everything wow. out with those. So it'll wow. be like a press conference and it's just like president tried, tried money, stimulus, president tried. No, no, no president tried money, stimulus. <laughs> and it's just <laughs> crazy distillation of the day's news. Uh, <laughs> um, oh my God. Yeah. But something like that is like not something that would have been in the old screen slate, but obviously now it's able to sort of encompass these other forms of media that people are are watching a little bit more easily. Yeah. And something like that is so interesting because it does, you know, be bringing different, you know, media that are kept apart or different forms or formats uh, or, you know, venues or traditions, bring them all together and talking about them together. Because I mean, in an ideal sense, that's what it would be nice to be able to do more more often. But it's 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 challenging and hard to do that. So I, I like I like those juxtapositions that that happen because of that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's I I want to talk more about how everyone is watching movies right now. I mean, what what platforms they're using to do it, how they're doing it both legally and illegally, what constitutes like programming for them? Because right now, most things are being programmed. If it's not by a Criterion or a movie, it's by yourself because you would just have to, you know, most of my film viewing in New York would be dictated by what's playing at Anthology or uh, Metrograph or any number of other good repertory screens, film at Lincoln Center, where it's like, okay, I get, I have a lineup of things. Here's what I'm going to see. I really like that someone else has picked something for me because I have other stuff I want to watch on my own, but I like being pushed in other directions. And who's doing that now? You know, I mean, who is the one who's guiding us to watch one specific thing versus another? Right now, it feels like the conversation revolves around a new thing that goes up on HBO Max. You know, it's like I watched Malice on HBO Max recently, probably the last movie I saw or one of the last movies I saw. And I watched that because a lot of other it was on HBO Max and other people were watching it, too. And I hadn't seen it before. So that's the reason why I'm going to watch it. Or, you know, like movies model is interesting because there's a new movie every day. Criterion is interesting because things are expiring at the end of the month and it forces people to watch stuff at the end of a month. What is the thing that pushes someone to watch something now? I, I don't know. You know, it's like I'm it. I know some of those things for me and I know some of them for you, Nelly, too. But I'm always interested well, to talk about them more. I feel like the bubbles are so much more pronounced too. Like everyone, this was several months ago now, but I feel like so many of my friends, it's just like everyone heard that you must watch when a stranger calls back. Yes. And- <laughs> it beca- it became a huge, this, this direct to Showtime movie <laughs> from the early nineties became this must see event among <laughs> our circle of friends. And it was like, no one cares about this movie in the world. You know, it's like we do and we all watched it and loved it. But like that was a rare instance of a sense of community around a movie where everyone wanted to talk about it and see it that we would have gotten from a from a physical viewing, from a physical screening in a theater. And it happened and we were all there and just like 
we we freaked out over it. You know, it's like it's yeah. so hard to make that happen now. But meanwhile, at the periphery, it's like I'm sorry, everyone's watching 1998's The Mummy. Yeah, no, they are. They are. <laughs> You're like, Pro- okay, I guess that's your when a stranger calls back. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 they're watching it because of availability, and that's something that's interesting too. Like, there's curation and there's availability, and I think people look on streaming platforms for like, okay, what are movies from an era that I ha- maybe haven't seen or have heard about? And Letterbox, I think, feeds into this hugely, where you see a lot of friends watching something, and then you also want to watch it. It's about a conversation around a particular movie because you want to be able to talk about the movie that you saw. I mean, the thing that we do. On Tuesday nights, Nellie and I are, have a, a, a film group with friends of ours, and I love it. It's been one of my highlights of quarantine, where it's 10 of us or so, and we're all good friends. We all work in film. A lot of us are programmers or have been programmers, and it's a kind of an exquisite corpse-style thing where we each pick a movie each week, and it has to link somehow to the previous movie. And it's it's almost a case of trying to stump the other people in the club because it's you're programming for other programmers. So you're trying to show things that haven't shown in New York in like the last 15 years or so. So it's, you know, going to some really deep cuts and some really interesting pathways. And one of the last things we watched was 1988's the night before with Keanu Reeves, which none of us had seen before. And that was uh, quite an experience. (laughs) Well, I I have to ask, how was the night, how was the night before? I also have not. That's a, that's a, another example of a movie I was saying before that. I mean, I was alive. I was pretty much. I mean, trying to watch as much as whatever came out then, but I don't I don't remember seeing that. <laughs> what was crazy is how few of us had even heard of the night before. People yeah. who have spent their entire lives reading about and watching movies and talking about them. I would say most of us hadn't heard of the night before before. I so I couldn't make it last week, so I just but I started it because I wanted to see what the movie was, and the cast was coming up, and I was like, I there's no way I don't know what this movie is. Yeah, just, like watching like the names roll by, I was like, this is so in my wheelhouse. I was, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't super alive, but I was. <laughs> it would have been on the shelves of the video store when I was a kid, you know. Oh, and, and, and that movie, too. I mean, there's a lot to be said about that movie, generally. Um, but it is another kind of West Coast After Hours, whereas, like, After Hours was perfect. After Hours comes out, mid-'80s, can't be topped. You, you can't do it, another New York version of it. So multiple mm-hmm. filmmakers are like, all right, we must do a different, an After Hours in a different city. So it's like, in L.A., there's Into the Night, there's Blind Date, which I mentioned earlier, the Blake Edwards film. And then there's also apparently The Night Before, which is Keanu Reeves and Lori Laughlin, <laughs> where it's like uh, Ferris Bueller meets After Hours and is uh, pretty racist and about um, Lori Laughlin basically being sold into sex slavery. Um, oh my God. <laughs> deeply troubling movie in, in, in a lot of ways that passes as like a mainstream uh, normal you know, kind of teen sex comedy, but it's an incredible snapshot of a certain era of sexual and racial politics. It also has an incredible cast of people in it and is beautifully shot in a way that movies don't look like anymore. And it's just like, okay, well, 
you know, this is like a fascinating window into a world of movies that just does not exist anymore. Um, and it's nice that we have a club where we're unearthing these things. This is exactly the kind of movie that would get shown in a repertory series in New York. We'd all be like, what the hell is that? We're all going to go see that. And then <laughs> we watch it together on Tuesday nights and we talk about it. We get on a Zoom afterwards and we talk about it. And that's super fun because it replicates that experience of you go to see a movie, you run into your friends as, uh, there and you get to talk in the lobby with them afterwards and shoot the shit and maybe even go to a bar and get a drink and you know talk about it. it and it's it's nice that's the thing that we're all missing is that kind of community yeah coming together happening happening upon something and it's just so increasingly rare it's so hard to just like discover something now when everything is a queue that you have of 200 movies and you're just checking them off you know you're just going yeah. down a list and the worst is that. when you're like talking about like what's expiring or something you know I oh yeah the same list and then people yeah. are like have you seen x and you're like yeah it's not that good <laughs> <laughs> well well and, and 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 that's why like the different like vagaries of different streaming platforms come into focus where you know, you right. have something like like Criterion. It's like stuff expires at the end of the month. Everything, everyone watches stuff when it's expiring at the end of the month. The TCM app, which I love, obsessed with the TCM app, stuff is exp- it's a free for all. Stuff's expiring on a week by week, but day by day basis. Who knows? Yeah. You know, and so you, yeah, so you have to now. so you have to check it all the time because you don't know if something's going to be gone. There, I have. Five insanely obscure preco Gregory Lacava movies in my in my TCM app. I have to watch in the next four days. Yeah, we, we, oh, we yeah, should watch them together. Those are expiring because I taped a bunch when they had that Gregory Lacava day. Oh yeah, no, they're all expiring by the end of the week, Nelly. So we should watch them. I mean, it's uh, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of these ones that they never show. They're really obscure, and they're just like sitting there to be watched. You know, and so it's like. That's another reason. I do like that you, those of us that are deep in this, I think are checking the different streaming platforms every single day and sort of being like, well, what do I need to prioritize? What do I have to watch by the end of the week? What's going to force me to watch something? Um, Because it might disappear. And that that is what's dictating the programming now more than anything else, I would say, in terms of what we watch. This is this is the digital permutation of of like the scarcity or rarity of like this movie is only screening once, um, and then that all ties into the push that the event of a screening will give you. You know that you'll 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 actually get together and, and do that. But when you have everything or so many things available to you, it's it's almost harder to prioritize. <laughs> What's funny is that a lot of the stuff it's like it's you know I I'm not like it's much going from like. Uh, app to app like seeing what's streaming but i feel like sometimes i'll be like this is street like gonna leave streaming and it's a movie that is wide widely available oh totally like there yeah. is no reason i need to watch this in the next three days because it's leaving criterion well <laughs> what, oh, oh oh no i know i mean that's why i watched like the china syndrome i talked about earlier you know it's like that's available on tubi or all these other platforms it, and the other interesting thing that you see is People who are like, oh, I have to watch this before it expires, though I have a file downloaded that I've had for five years that I haven't watched yet. But this is this is pushing me to actually finally watch it. This is the thing that's going to get me to finally watch this movie that I own a copy of, that I have a downloaded MP4 of on my hard drive. But I'm going to watch it in the next three days because if I don't, I might not ever watch it. And so that is like now 
what's infecting all of our brains and and how because everything is available if you're a, a cinephile of a certain you know breed you have access to everything yeah. a lot a lot of stuff is available via downloadable file and so how do you determine when everything is available everything in quotes what to watch what what, what is the thing you're going to direct your eyes toward and put before everything else Expiring on Criterion rules everything around me. I know. It really does. It's so funny to me how at the end of every month, I'm like, I know Nelly is like flop sweating, just like clicking through. <laughs> like, I've got to fucking watch whatever this like Laurel and Hardy short is that's expiring. Like, <laughs> top, top priority. Yeah. <laughs> right. Don't, don't try to get in touch with Nelly on the 30th or 31st. <laughs> I'm like, I'm watching like five minutes of a Volker Schloendorf movie that I'm never going to finish. I almost watched that one. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's very sad that I know. And I think I let that one go. I think I let that one go into the night air. And I was like, nope. Yeah. It's funny what we like, what we let go on the stream platforms and then they just reappear like uh, Robert Wise's executive suite. I missed the last time I was on TCM. It expired. It's back. I've got another week to watch executive suite. So maybe, maybe this is the week, you know, when it finally happens. <laughs> well, um, this, this, maybe this is a good place to, uh, to, to, to wrap up since ta- talking about, all, Cut us talking off. about all this. No, talking about all this is just making me anxious about what I should be watching now that I'm, <laughs> I'm not watching, so and my much. time is running out. The hourglass. Um, but but actually, wait. I want to make sure. Wait, Nelly, did we did we talk about what the last film you saw was? I'm gonna go back a little ways because I really have been watching so much stuff that I don't want to talk about. I got a free Disney Plus um, account, mm-hmm. and for with my phone. And I I decided I wanted to go through chronologically on the animated features. So I've been rewatching a lot of the ones I've seen and watching a lot of the ones I haven't seen, like Saludos Amigos or, you know, whatever. Just like a lot of random old Disney stuff. The one that blew my mind is 101 Dalmatians. I remember you like tweeting about that. I haven't seen that since I was a kid, but you're, you're... Twitter thread made me want to rewatch it. Run, don't walk. It is so good. Was that in anticipation of the upcoming Cruella? You watch that? <laughs> it was just the next one chronologically. <laughs> 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 and it was, it's great. I mean, the animation is incredible. Um, it's really, there's no kids in it, which is interesting. Like, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. at it from your ex, I mean, there's not kids in all of the Disney early Disney movies, but like, it's kind of like a almost like a romance between these two adult humans um, that have you know Dalmatian dogs, and it's like incredible, like sort of like just like mid century London movie too. I mean, mm-hmm. like it's hmm. it's really really good. I mean, really good and. The animation is just incredible, including the way that they're like working with so many different, they work with a lot of different styles of animation in the film and um, yeah, make it a priority. Yeah. We'll add that to the list. We can, we can end it with that. 
Thank you both so much. This has been, I just feel like we x-rayed watching movies from like a hundred different levels here. So just as a reminder, watch the Close to Home series and Criterion. And then you heard about Screen Slate as well. Uh, and we should do this again uh, once once I've finally caught up just a little bit with everything you're watching. Thanks, Nick. This was fun. Yeah, thanks, Nick. This was great. I feel like the last time we did this, we were on a podcast all together. We talked about Nellie Kaplan. All those movies are on Criterion oh, no. now. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, that was that was like several years ago now. And that was super fun. And now it's come full circle where those movies are available on streaming on Criterion. So, yeah, and um, definitely watch a lot of those movies. Yeah, th- those movies are incredible. So everyone should should watch those on Criterion. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at rapold.substack.com. That's rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.